it is really hard sometimes for physicians to be thinking of that patient who is more than the patient. Our utmost duty is to the constitution. And although that often does not cause any conflict, occasionally it does. If things had been different, for example, if we had been at war in the Pacific, we may have made different decisions or made different recommendations as to what to do with the Theodore Roosevelt or any other ship with a COVID outbreak, just like we would in combat. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Navy Captain Dr. Christine Sears to Wardox. Dr. Sears currently serves as a U.S. Southern Command Surgeon. She completed her undergraduate degree at Johns Hopkins and received her MD from Northwestern University. She's a board-certified urologist with fellowship training at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Dr. Sears is a seasoned clinician educator and has held many senior leadership positions, including 7th Fleet Surgeon, Commander of Naval Hospital Oak Harbor, and Commanding Officer of the USNS Comfort Medical Treatment Facility. She has deployed multiple times in support of operational missions. You can read her full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. Welcome to Wardox. We're privileged to be joined by Navy Captain Dr. Christine Sears, a fellowship-trained urologist who is currently serving as the Southern Command Surgeon. Chris, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you, Wayne. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Dr. Sears, tell us what led you to pursue a career in military medicine. Well, so like so many of us as physicians, I initially joined the Navy uh, to pay for medical school. I was really very concerned about uh, leaving medical school with a house worth of debt hanging over my shoulder and was concerned that that would limit my freedom as an adult practicing medicine with the places I could go and the things that I could do after that. And what I really found is, although that was the reason that I initially joined the military, I was really very happy to be in the military once I was there. And particularly with my choice of specialty as a urologist, uh, as Doug is, you know, back in the day when we were junior physicians, it was very uncommon for women to be in urology. And I actually found the Navy to be more welcoming uh, than much of the civilian community. And so that was really one of the reasons uh, that I chose to train in the Navy. So what made you choose the Navy over the other services? Well, so uh, both of my grandfathers uh, and my father were all in the Navy. So my father and my, one of my grandfathers were Naval Academy graduates and the other grandfather was an engineering duty officer as well. And so when faced with the different opportunities, my grandfather did say, you know, the army takes better care of their doctors, but I don't know how you're going to look in green. So (laughs) join the Navy. You're approaching 30 years of active duty service. What made you decide to stay in? I think it was really uh, twofold, one of which was, uh, again, as a urologist, as a woman in urology, in those days, there were not that many women in urology. And and truly, the military, I think, was a more welcoming home for us than it sounds like some of my experiences from my compatriots on uh, in the civilian sector. And even more so, after 9-11, like so many of us, I found that patriotic surge take hold. And 9-11 was actually my second check-in day at Naval Hospital Bremer 
Bremerton as a brand new staff urologist. So I graduated from residency in 2001 and, uh, there, there I was uh, begging to come in, and the hospital was at uh, ThreatCon Delta, and I wasn't allowed to come in. And like so many of us surgeons, I said, but I'm a surgeon. Of course, I have to come to work. So they didn't let me come in anyway. Um, but that really, that 9-11 and the service thereafter really cemented my understanding that the American service member really is someone who needs the best medical care. After you finished your internship, you did a general medical officer tour on the USS McKee. Did you feel prepared for that? And were there any interesting experiences or cases that you remember? I felt as prepared as anyone is uh, one year after internship. Again, I think we surgeons maybe are a little more confident than we should be <laughs> at a young age. And uh, so I really did feel prepared. However, nothing really prepares you to be in the middle of the ocean with about a thousand primary care patients under your care. And so I think there's really two cases that, that stood out. Um, the first was someone who had was a, a smoking sailor and she had smoked quite a lot. And she had actually gone to one of the local emergency rooms several times with what had been diagnosed as having recurrent bronchitis. And so she had been placed on multiple courses of antibiotics, had never really been evaluated for that or for that matter, even told to quit smoking. And so in the middle of the ocean on the way to Hawaii, uh, she developed a, a very bad cough and she was wheezing. So we gave her an inhaler, which she had never had before and sent her uh, sick in quarters to her rack. And subsequently that night, uh, a medical emergency was called. And uh, it turns out that she had a very, very serious uh, uh, COPD attack, essentially. And so they brought her up and uh, gave her epi, tried to do everything we could. And really, she was turning ever more blue. We didn't have a pulse ox in those days. And uh, fortunately, my partner, Hans Hildebrandt, said, you know, what if we tried out uh, giving her some Valium? I once had a, someone at USIS tell me that occasionally Valium can actually break bronchospasm. And thank goodness that worked. And we didn't need to intubate her. Had we had to do that, we didn't have a ventilator and we would have needed to bag valve mask her in order to provide ventilation really all the way to Hawaii, which would have been very challenging to do. So that was really experience number one. And the second is a little more near and dear to our hearts, I think, as kidney doctors, certainly, although we're surgical kidney doctors. And that is someone that we had present with abdominal pain. And in the vast differential diagnosis of abdominal pain, we actually found that she was in diabetic ketoacidosis. So although she was able to talk and was uh, awake and coherent, she was having diabetic ketoacidosis. And so we didn't have any chemistry analyzers, so we really didn't have a good way of knowing what her glucose levels were. Um, but we did have a glucometer, but really within about 24 hours, we ran out of strips for that. So we were unable to measure her glucose at all. So remembering from way back in the days of medical school uh, that if you have some sugar spilled into the urine, usually that's at around 180 or 200 <laughs> milligrams per deciliter. Uh, we used urine dipsticks along with her IV insulin drip across the ocean in order to try to keep glucose in her urine, ketones out of her urine. And that was really how we managed her all the way across uh, the ocean. And so that was uh, very concerning to both uh, Eric Schwartzman, who was my partner at the time, and I. So definitely not what you would normally see in a hospital or for that matter, even in a clinic setting these days. So were you the ranking medical officer or did you have a staff with you at that time? 
So I did. Um, I was the general medical officer and then as the medical department head. And then we also had an undersea medical officer with us who was primarily there for diving or submarine related issues. Uh, the McKee was a submarine tender. The UMO was also there. And we had approximately 20 corpsmen an independent duty corpsman and some support staff who were there to help. But definitely in terms of modern lab capability and things like that, uh, that, that was it. So we had an operating room, one operating tech, but uh, again, no way to actually ventilate the patient if we had had it to operate on them. You trained in urology in San Diego and then specialized in female pelvic and reconstructive surgery at Walter Reed. What role does a surgical subspecialist such as yourself play in the military health system and how are those skills then used during wartime deployments? I think it really is required in the military that we have that military medical wholeness so that we represent a diverse uh, variety of specialties, both ones we typically think of as combat specialties, orthopedics, anesthesia, for example, neurosurgery, vascular surgery, um, as well as really the entire military medical wholeness. So certainly we've seen in the past two years the deployment of microbiologists, numerous lab techs, and most recently, a lot of primary care physicians taking care of Operation Allies Welcome patients. And so I think really where the surgical subspecialist fits very nicely is certainly in our training and teaching hospitals, making sure that we're growing that next generation of surgeons, but also in times when those specialties are really needed. So for example, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, many of the blast injury patients or uh, dismounted IED injuries that we were seeing in Afghanistan in particular, where there was that extensive trauma of the pelvis, legs, multiple injuries, multiple amputations, was very beneficial to have that additional training really in pelvic surgery to be able to help with that. So you deployed as a urologist with Fleet Hospital 8 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Tell us a little bit about that experience and any interesting cases from that. That was a, a little bit of a surprise, uh, not in terms of, I think we all understood that after 9-11, it was highly likely that we would be deployed. Uh, the year prior to that, I had had my son, uh, my first child, and had passed my boards uh, approximately two weeks before I deployed, such that I was not even able to open the envelope. My husband opened it while we were on the phone uh, while I was in uh, in Rota. And so being uh, with the Fleet Hospital 8, um, we initially obviously assumed we were going into Iraq, going into a combat zone, and that I would be doing more combat urology general urology, blunt trauma, penetrating trauma. And we were pretty surprised to find that when Turkey did not allow us to come through Turkey, we actually landed in Rota, Spain, uh, which is not a bad place to spend a, a combat uh, tour. Um, and so essentially we were a European evacuation hospital, similar to Landstuhl, only in a tent type setting. And one of the things that was really beneficial there is because there were no expectations of us as a fixed facility, I was really able to return people back to duty pretty quickly. We had many, many people come, not unfortunately, you know, not with penetrating trauma or blunt trauma, but with kidney stones between chronic dehydration from just the busy ops they had, drinking less water, and perhaps the mineral content of the water as well we actually were able to remove quite a few kidney stones or allow them to pass and then able to return people back to duty in Iraq. Additionally, I got to assist uh, the general surgeons and the orthopedic surgeons with quite a few cases as well. You were the commanding officer of the medical treatment facility on the Comfort. Can you tell us first, describe the Comfort to us, and then what is the mission of the Comfort and Mercy, 
and a couple stories you might have from being on the ship. So the um, Comfort and the Mercy are both U.S. Navy hospital ships. So the Navy has had hospital ships ever since the Civil War. And uh, the two Navy hospital ships we have now are converted San Clemente class tankers. You'll recall the Exxon Valdez. <laughs> Shortly after that, uh, they decided it was not a good idea to carry oil in those ships anymore. And so uh, these two ships were purchased and were converted into hospital ships. So they each have about a 750-bed capacity up up to a thousand beds, although some of those are light care beds. So people actually have to climb up into them, which is obviously not great uh, for orthopedic injuries, for example. And their primary mission is to serve as role three or definitive surgery hospitals in the case of combat. Now that said, uh, they have not been used for that that often, uh, really ever since the Gulf Wars have not been used for that, but instead are used mostly for theater security cooperation um, missions and humanitarian assistance disaster relief operations where we can take the ships uh, to another country and be able to provide definitive surgery care, surgical care in times that people require that. Both ships have a CT scanner, multiple operating rooms, a vascular suite, a very large blood bank, and really are very well-stocked tertiary care hospitals that we just happen to be able to drive into multiple places in the world. So tell us about your experience being the commander of the comfort. Yeah, thank you. So, um, so really, that was a, a wonderful, wonderful time. And one of the highlights of my career, I was able to not only be at sea as a naval officer should be, uh, but also to lead. And in addition to be able to actually actively operate. So I was able to do um, some procedures, uh, predominantly ones that are not done that often in the United States for women with very severe pelvic organ prolapse, was able to uh, work with some of the residents and fellows uh, from military medicine in that. And so that was just really a wonderful combination of getting to be a, a doctor and a leader and a naval officer all at the same time. And so we were in many ports. We went to 12 different countries and uh, just took care of very, very many people during that tour. So sometimes the, the hospital ships are dispersed or deployed to locations that may not have a port. Can you describe to us what may be the plan when you're at a location that may not have a port that's say a third world country or other place? So one of the places that... We were, for example, out off of the coast of Colombia in what was then a FARC-controlled country was uh, an area where we were about nine miles off the coast. And so we actually required taking host nation, essentially speedboats, uh, host nation water taxis, which were closer to a speedboat, back and forth to shore. Uh, one of the areas, Juan Chaco, in those days had one tractor, one horse, and then the little speedboats we were pulling into the tiny pier. And so that made for some pretty dramatic commutes to and from work, taking care of people on land as we were bringing some surgical patients to the ship, and then also us going on land to be able to deliver primary care on land. So in those circumstances, the surgical assets remain on the ship, and then medical assets go on shore to try to help triage and identify those that need to be sent back to the ship? 
Exactly. That's how, how we normally do that. Exactly. And then in addition, there are some places where there isn't even a small peer. Um, for example, in Nicaragua, there was not even a suitable peer for that type of scenario that we had in Colombia. And so in that case, we actually flew uh, our helicopters, configured our helicopters to take patients and the staff back and forth and actually flew every single person in or out. What happens when you have a patient who then needs a higher level of care. So you said that the the ship is a role three. What happens when they need role four, role five care? So were that in combat, we would then uh, evacuate uh, the, the patient elsewhere. The Mercy now does have MV-22 capability as well. So that extends the range um, for those, uh, those air assets. That can be done either by moving the ship. If it were a large number of patients, for example, in wartime, you could then move the ship to another place to offload to a hospital. Or if it was within uh, air or sea range, uh, medevac those patients out. What we usually tried to do for the theater security cooperation um, missions is limit those to the types of cases we believe that we can manage on the ship. So, so for example, uh, widely metastatic cancer or something like that is usually not something that we would perform um, during one of those missions. That said, that would happen sometimes in a humanitarian assistance disaster relief mission. And that's really when we would partner the host nation, the Ministry of Health, to see if we could get someone then flown, for example, flown to the United States or flown to another country that has that higher level of care. Can you describe what that aircraft is and how exactly is a critically injured patient evacuated from that hospital ship to someplace else? So it's an MV-22, and so it is a rotary wing aircraft that can uh, do vertical lift and take off. Is there the ability to transport a critically ill patient from a hospital ship to a higher level of care? So, so although none of the those aircraft are currently configured to my knowledge, and I may be wrong because they may have changed that in the past two months, but currently there aren't any program of record um, MV-22s that are specifically designed for critical care transport. It is absolutely possible to do. So the hospital ship really is designed to take care of as much as it can and be a theater referral hospital versus one that we may think of in the army as a role three that is preparing a patient to be stabilized to then move to say launch stool or some other location. Yes, exactly. So um, there are, as comfort is configured, there are four 20 bed ICUs. So we have quite a bit of capacity to hold people. And on the ship, is there a full complement of different types of physicians? Yes. And, and so when we deploy for combat, there's a sp specified uh, type of mix of surgical and internal medicine specialties and critical care specialties. And then for most of the theater security cooperation um, engagements that we do or humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, we tailor those packages and ask for specific physicians so for and and nurses so for example for a lot of the the theater security cooperation surgical missions we will know specifically we want to do surgeries where people will recover quickly so that we can move on to the next country and so we will specifically tailor the types of physicians that we ask for based on that so for example uh, there are many people with chronic uh, cholecystitis 
in uh, Central and South America, uh, who, unlike in the United States, do not get their gallbladder out immediately when they have their first bout. And so we do uh, specifically often offer that as a procedure, so a laparoscopic cholecystectomy as a procedure, which we will then do large volumes of. And so people can really move through that clinical pathway and we can be reasonably certain that they will be healthy uh, and ready for discharge. Uh, similarly, many urologic procedures, people have a pretty quick uh, recovery from, but so, obviously in combat, that's different. So we had a previous guest that talked about outfitting C-17 aircraft to do surgery while en route flying and kind of describe some of the challenges of altitude and turbulence and all kinds of things that can happen on an aircraft. In a ship like the Mercy or Comfort, can you tell that you're on a ship when you're in the operating room there, or is it just like being in a hospital on land? That's a great question. So, um, so usually, so the operating rooms are located centrally uh, to the center, if you will, of movement of the of moment of the ship. And so we are actually able to do ophthalmologic surgery, for example, um, on the ship. And so it is, it is very stable. And when they do training for these ships, do they train not only while the ship is uh, moving across the sea, or do they typically do these procedures in medical care when you're docked off of uh, land? So, so usually for the theater security cooperation missions, we are either uh, at the pier or we are uh, at a standoff distance. If it is a more dangerous area or a place without a port, we'll be at a standoff distance and bring patients to the ship. The ship will be at anchor, but it is absolutely capable of doing surgeries while, while underway at sea. So if you were underway at sea, and there was, uh, I don't even know the term, but a fleet that was taking on heavy casualties. How would they then get the patient from the naval engagement to a ship that's anchored uh, in a standoff distance? Rotary wing is what we've traditionally used, um, similar to Kazovac or Medivac on land. It is also certainly conceivable that that can happen by ship, uh, whether that's uh, you know, a smaller connector type ship. Following your duties on the Comfort, you served as command surgeon of the U.S. 7th Fleet, embarked on the USS Blue Ridge. Tell us a little about your role there and any interesting stories from that assignment. So got to the Blue Ridge, got to 7th Fleet in September of 2019. And um, at that time, we were scheduled to have a very robust uh, mission uh, really doing the good partnership work throughout the Pacific and was already engaged very heavily with many of the other Navy medicine uh, military assets uh, really throughout the region, including trips to a military medicine conference in India, strong, very strong partnerships with Korea and Japan and their navies. And as I think everyone knows, if you fast forward a couple of months, um, it was then January of 2020, and we began to kind of hear about this thing called coronavirus and sort of think, hmm, well, how might this impact us? And so really very quickly, my leadership was able to see this as a, as a large operational concern and not just a medicine concern and was able to stand up a team so we could start looking at 
okay, if we look at the Diamond Princess and we look at what has been happening with, with these cruise ships around the world, and then you take that to a Navy ship where we don't have individual staterooms or very few of us have individual staterooms and many people are living in a, in a group setting, what in the world would, uh, would COVID look like on a ship? And so we rapidly began to design plans of, well, what, what could we do? And uh, I am certainly very grateful to the cruise line industry uh, for being willing to speak with me when I said, okay, so if we could actually pull someone into port and say, we're here and we're, and we're not leaving, could we do that? And they were very helpful and said, absolutely. If there's some, you know, we're not given the authority to offload ships, but if you ever have the opportunity, that would be very beneficial. And so certainly that became very useful um, once they started having cases on the Theodore Roosevelt. How are you involved with that scenario with the Roosevelt having COVID kind of spreading uncontrolled in something that we really didn't know what was going on at that time? Right. I think that was uh, really a very uh, challenging learning environment. So the Theodore Roosevelt started really having cases. The first week they had cases was really the first week that that paper came out of Washington State looking at nursing homes. And they had first sort of described asymptomatic transmission. And uh, that was something really not widely understood in the United States. And so that definitely became very challenging for us to know, you know, do we test? How many people do we test? Do we test everyone? Um, and then certainly as things have played out, what do tests mean, right? Trying to get people back to duty, they're still positive by PCR, which was the only test we had available then. You know, what does that mean? And, and I think now in hindsight, we all know, gosh, they're not positive anymore. You should ignore that. Um, but that was really not something known then. And so my role primarily was in leading really the entire fleet to come to a COVID posture that was enabling military operations and being COVID-free enough that we could still function while not keeping the entire fleet in port really for you know, a year or, or nine months. And that was very challenging. And certainly with the Theodore Roosevelt, we had a pretty um, robust team. You know, we partnered with the ship and with Pacific Fleet and Naval Hospital Guam really early to say, okay, well, looking at the numbers, what does this look like? And in that time, some of the data coming out of New York said that there was a 0.2% mortality rate, even in young, healthy people. You know, in, in hindsight, thank goodness we haven't seen that. Um, but really, when you multiply 0.2% sounds like a very low rate until you have 5,000 people on a ship, at which point it becomes uh, something very concerning uh, to the to us as well as the operational commanders. And that is really why we had this robust medical response. The 3rd Med Battalion had actually just canceled an exercise uh, in the Pacific because of COVID. So they were readily available, thank goodness. And their 3MEF commander allowed them uh, to come help. Naval Hospital Guam was also very helpful. And then with time, the Navy also um, mobilized an expeditionary uh, medical facility or fleet hospital type field hospital facility as well. Um, but definitely um, very challenging. 5,000 people, you would like to get them all into single rooms, and yet the hotels are closed. That involves putting people out in town in Guam. Guam obviously does not want people to get COVID from us. And so really it was a very sophisticated and challenging mechanism to test people as quickly as possible so that if they were negative and they were asymptomatic, they could be out in town. But the moment someone became positive uh, or certainly became sick, they would get medical care or get pulled back onto base. And so working that very challenging problem of how do we make sure that we're not passing COVID on to Guam and, and hurting their situation there while making sure that we're taking care of our warfighters as well. 
So you went from the seventh fleet over to United States Southern Command. How did that happen? And what is your role in the Southern Command right now? I am the command surgeon of U.S. Southern Command, and that was a nominative position. So I competed for that with uh, other service O6s for the position. And my role is as the primary medical advisor to the commander of U.S. Southern Command, General, General Laura Richardson. And so in that role, Again, as in at 7th Fleet, usually we would be spending the predominant amount of our time engaging with our partner nations, uh, really developing and helping them develop robust biosurveillance systems so that they have a strong idea of the diseases and the risks in their country's partner nation militaries and uh, providing those medical engagements such as the USNS Comfort coming down or other Army and Air Force engagements as well. And uh, like all things in the past two years, that often gets subsumed by COVID. And so there is a, a constant COVID drumbeat as well, ensuring that all of our people are vaccinated or have made the appropriate decisions if they're choosing not to be vaccinated, that they have submitted the correct waivers if it's a medical reason or a religious reason that they're seeking an exemption from vaccination. And so a lot of my time does uh, get taken there. We do have many long-standing partnerships, particularly in Colombia, Panama, Peru, Honduras, and, and other countries in the, in the region where we have enduring relationships where we're partnering medically. But as you can imagine, many people's medical departments and health departments are, are pretty overwhelmed in the Americas right now uh, because of COVID, as many places in our own country are. What advice would you give to a junior medical officer that was interested in leadership positions in operational medicine in the Navy? So I think first I would say that as long as it doesn't sound absolutely awful, say yes. And even if it does sound absolutely awful, you should probably say yes as well. I think it's important to keep an open mind. So I think particularly in Western allopathic medicine, we are often so dedicated to our technology, so dedicated to very complex workups and very definitive diagnoses that often are just not achievable in the operational setting. And so I think both in terms of people working at the clinical level in the operational field, as well as leaders in operational medicine, it's really important to remember that the tools that we may have are not necessarily very robust. And it is always acceptable to call a friend, whether that's uh, a telemedicine, whether that's by telephone. And then I think from the leadership perspective, it's really important to always keep in mind that we support and defend the constitution. And so while it is really hard sometimes for physicians to be thinking of that patient who is more than the patient. Our utmost duty is to the constitution. And although that often does not cause any conflict, occasionally it does. If things had been different, for example, if we had been at war in the Pacific, we may have made different decisions or made different recommendations as to what to do with the Theodore Roosevelt or any other ship with a COVID outbreak, just like we would in combat. When do you fight through the malaria? When do you go ahead and take a knee and, and fall back and say, wait a minute, we're seeing some malaria. We need to treat for this now, and then we'll go ahead and the army will advance. And so I think always keeping in mind that dual responsibility to the individual patient, as well as 
goes to the operational line commander is very important. What is something you think that people don't know about Navy medicine that you think they should know? I think the first thing is that we're not always on ships. You know, sometimes uh, it's, we have aviation pieces of Navy medicine, as well as the hospital, as well as undersea medicine or medicine on submarines. And so I think it's important to know that the Navy isn't always on a surface ship. I think the other thing is the really the wide variety that we see really anything from on land, on sea, on the air, under the sea, as well as primary care and advanced surgical care. And I think that's something that people often don't think of in military medicine. So we may have some listeners that are in college right now that are interested in military medicine. What advice would you give to them in regards to the pros and cons to being a military Navy medical doctor? I think the first thing is, I think really the biggest con is that for people who are people who want to stay in the community that they were, that they grew up and really are fixed with their neighbors and friends and family in a fixed area and are not interested in travel, um, I, I would say the Navy is not for them. Otherwise, I think the best advice is really to just keep an open mind because you will often find yourself in situations that you think are very challenging. And in fact, those are not hardship type of challenging. They are challenging to make you grow. And if you don't say yes and you don't put yourself out there, then you'll never get to succeed in those things. So long careers are often characterized by highs and lows. What do you do to maintain resilience and a positive attitude when the stresses are really excessive? And maybe to use a nautical metaphor, the seas are rough. Yes. Uh, so certainly the seas have been very rough for the past couple of years. I think they have been rough for many people globally and many, certainly many people in medicine. We've worked very long hours. We have served until we feel like we were residents before the 80-hour work week. Uh, and it's been really very exhausting. And so I think for me, especially, I did struggle with depression postpartum. And I'm very great, grateful for some of my partners in urology, Kara Chrisman and Tim Donahue, who both took me to my OBGYN and said, something is wrong with her. Please help her. <laughs> this is not normally like her. And so I am very sensitive to that. And then in addition, uh, my brother, Jeff Gray, died by suicide last year in August of 2020 as a junior physician in internal medicine. He had just finished his chief resident year at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Really, I'm sure some of that was uh, physician burnout and overwork. And I am sure that there are many other issues as well. And certainly his colleagues and the team did so much for him and were very supportive. And yet he died by suicide after discharge from the inpatient service uh, at Fort Belvoir. And so I think, you know, this issue of resiliency is really front and center for me as it is for so many of us. And so I think at the very specific level, the first thing is gratitude. So it is always important to be thankful for what you do have. And sometimes this even involves little mind games like, okay, I'm going to turn the shower cold because when I then turn it warm again, that brings joy. Seems very silly, very simple kind of mind hack, but in fact, even little things like that can be very beneficial. The other thing is getting regular exercise. So I am a pretty exercise dependent person. Um, and so that is really critical for me. Last year, after I was able to come home for, for Christmas, for the winter holidays, I did have to go into quarantine in my stateroom for two weeks. 
on the ship, not allowed to come out except to get my COVID shot. And um, so, uh, you know, I did download some extra videos for yoga and things like that beforehand, uh, just to make sure I could get some exercise while in this very confined space for two weeks. Other things, I think it is always a good idea. Uh, again, this is very tactical, but to have something that you can do that occupies part of your brain, as well as your, your body, whether that's crossword puzzles or knitting or tying flies or something that you can do that does not require electricity, does not require an internet connection, that if you are stranded in an airport or you're stranded in your car or you get stranded by bad weather or the many things that can challenge us, having something on your person that you can occupy your brain and body with, I think can really help break that cycle of catastrophizing um, that can come so easily uh, to many people. So how do you stay resilient when you're apart from your family for significant periods of time, particularly when you're on deployments at sea or other times in which you're separated from your normal social network? Um, so first of all, the good news is that when we are deployed and in settings like that, we become each other's family. So your Navy family, your Army family, your Air Force family really takes over and, and those people are with you and you form very, very strong bonds with them in that setting. I think uh, this is where technology has been very helpful. The first deployment, my husband and I were separated. We wrote snail mail letters to each other, and it took a very long time to get. And sometimes our cards actually crossed in the mail. And amazingly, they were the same cards we chose for each other. But certainly, fast forward, email available on the ship. And now certainly, uh, at the times that you're in port, and there's a Wi Fi signal, or you're able to get to a hotel, or they have Wi Fi on the pier, then that more instant communication can happen via FaceTime, um, or something like that. So you can stay connected to your family. But again, I think I think those daily behaviors are super important exercise, uh, sunlight. There were certainly some times last year during the Theodore Roosevelt um, uh, outbreak that people had to remind me, like, Doc, you need to get outside. You need to just stand outside for 15 minutes and, and it will help. And they were absolutely right. So I think those little behaviors, and it's, it's so easy to forget them. I mean, I think we all know that from surgical training, when you're on call in the middle of the night, it's so easy to get your food at McDonald's. I'm still working on my diet, but it is really important to try to do those correct little behaviors every day, because with time, those are going to build that resiliency. I'm always amazed when I see female physicians who are in their seventh, eighth, ninth month of pregnancy, and they're still working just as hard as they were when they weren't pregnant. And you had mentioned that you had postpartum depression. I know that it must be a struggle just having four kids of my own, but what advice would you give to women who are in the military, who are physicians, who have a child and are faced with returning to work in a stressful situation and then potentially having to leave their new baby to be cared for by someone else? I think the policies, thank goodness, in the military are improving dramatically. I know in the Navy, we now have about three months, I believe, that is available postpartum. It was six weeks when I had my kids. We did have, uh, I had a general surgery friend of mine who deployed at four months with her second child when we went uh, with the fleet hospital. And she was obviously still exclusively nursing at that time. And, and that was very frustrating for her as well as potentially not healthy for the child. And so I think, you know, we've moved forward in the military to where many people do not deploy for a year, obviously to the benefit of the health for both mother and child. And yet it still is very hard um, to leave. And so it's hard to know exactly what advice to give. I think 
I certainly missed my kids terribly, but on the other hand, I was also really glad to sort of feel like a doctor again <laughs> from going back to work. Um, but those, those are really challenging. I think Doug can probably speak to the fact that there were some Kimbros, which are our military medical, military urology meeting every year, where my mother came with my infant in tow uh, so that I could go ahead and continue uh, feeding them. And so it, it definitely is challenging. Um, I, you know, I was very grateful to have amazing partners. In Bremerton, I was in solo practice, but everyone at Madigan Army Medical Center really supported me. And then uh, when I was at Bethesda, again, my partners were just absolutely incredibly supportive of me in, in every way. So you had mentioned several techniques to remain resilient, sort of at a baseline. And we've interviewed several guests who have talked about how they needed at some life event where they had to reset their baseline because they had gone off the normal course of what they were able to withstand themselves. Do you have any tips for people who have gone off their normal baseline and need to be, they, I think some of the other guests called it be level set back mm -hmm. to their normal baseline. Did you find anything in particular that was helpful to get back to that point? Yeah, I think, I think from the postpartum depression, it definitely required medication. So that was absolutely positively necessary. And I really, you know, I am, I truly believe if it weren't for my partners uh, uh, at Bethesda and weren't for medication, I may not be here now. But I think in general, you know, anytime there's been that big change, it, at least for me, it was really finding those little moments of gratitude. And I think you have four kids, certainly with parenting, you know, there are times when you think it is the last moment, right? I cannot take one more moment of this. And maybe it's just me. I doubt it. Uh, and so whether it's walking outside and looking at the sunlight on a tree or whatever that is, I think that that helps. I think the other thing too, that has helped me is having goals, which you know, are a little bit bigger goals. So for example, at the age of 40, I ran my first marathon and my kids were what, four and six, six and eight, six and eight. And so, although that took a lot of time away from parenting as a busy surgeon, having that goal that was completely mine really enabled me to kind of break out of that because it's sort of having a separate goal. So I don't know if that really is similar to other people's level setting or not, but I think some sort of journey that is not your daily journey can be helpful. So small incremental steps is sort of what you've found to be helpful, having goals that you know you can achieve and then achieving those goals and it, it being outside of your normal professional life. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because yeah. I think that then sets up that positive feedback loop that kind of counteracts the negative feedback loop of things are terrible. They're only going to get worse. Well, wait a minute. This was good. You achieved this. It's going to get better. And, and so I, I, I agree. That's really important. So we're going to stay on the theme of family. If your future family listened to this podcast 100 years from now, what would you want them to hear about your career in military medicine? The first thing I think what I'd really like them to hear is that they are the reason why we do this. Supporting and defending the Constitution, making sure that there is a free United States for them in the future is why we put in these long hours and why we are away from them. And although it seems in the short run that we are not with them and necessarily helping them and holding their hand there in presence. In the long run, having the country that we have, having the constitution that we have is really helping them and their children as well. We've been speaking with Navy Captain, Dr. Christine Sears. Chris, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.